This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Let's return to our special episodes once again. But I propose to write... and also present to you a much longer series about something that we consume almost daily i'm talking about coffee there's been a new change in the culture of coffee drinking in india over the last uh, 10 or so years coffee drinking has been going through a major high in india at the moment uh, episodes ago i did uh, a one off uh, presentation on the history of uh, coffee houses in england some of you will probably remember that do uh, listen in to that episode when you get time but today more specifically i want to talk about this new culture of coffee shops in india several new coffee shops are set up across the country with young men and women gradually getting used to the culture of uh, spending time in a coffee shop for leisure some of them even set up walk stations in these coffee houses coffee houses as such are not a new development in india they had been around since at least the early 20th century nonetheless they were few and far between the young in india never really took to coffee shops too seriously until recently only during the last 10 or so years there's been a spike in the number of fashionable young men and women hanging out in coffee houses this is therefore a bit of an appropriate moment to take stock of how coffee drinking as a practice of leisure entered india there is a wonderful essay by historian ar venkata chalapati he wrote it about uh, roughly 20 years ago a delightful paper on how the indian middle classes in early 20th century south indian middle classes really in the early 20th century responded to the rising popularity of coffee by the mid 1930s coffee had already entered respectable middle class households in tamil nadu venkatachalapati begins the paper in fact with a quote by the writer pudumai pithan that some male householders believed that going without the morning cup of coffee felt as if the world had been passing through a depression the essay that he refers to in fact was uh, written during the depression period quite obviously coffee and the world of finance converged in the imagination of uh, tamil writers of those times in the 1930s and 1940s so um yet those writing during the 1930s clearly remembered the days and i quote when there was no coffee unquote 
One of these writers claimed that coffee drinking became a daily ritual probably after 1918. Venkata Chalapati concludes uh, that like trains, for example, coffee too arrived in India as a sign of modernity. Over time, it gave birth to a number of distinct styles or modes of experiencing leisure and became a part of the bloodstreams of popular culture in South India in particular since the 1930s. So this is really an occasion to recall uh, the history of coffee before it entered India. But we are not going to do that in this episode. That, in fact, is our objective in the next few episodes to try and recall a global history of coffee. In today's episode, I will also not talk about the close relationship of coffee with colonialism as a plantation crop. Virtually all the coffee Europeans drank came from areas which had already been colonized by Europeans in uh, the 18th and 19th century. The political economy of coffee plantation has been quite widely written about, and I'm not, as I said, going to talk about this Today, let us therefore begin with the simple fact that coffee or tea did not become much of a phenomenon in India until the end of the 19th century. Some amount of coffee was cultivated in the Mysore region, um, even in the 18th century. But uh, until the early 20th century, most of it was either exported away or consumed by a handful of Europeans. But by the 20th century, even the poorer classes of Indians began to drink coffee. F.R. Hemingway wrote in the Tanzor Gazetteer, that uh, while the higher classes of Indians started to consume coffee, some among the lower classes who earlier used to have cold rice in the morning now took to drinking coffee. Likewise, the Tirunevali District Gazetteer noted that kanji or the practice of drinking cold rice water was gradually replaced by a craving for coffee. Among both relatively better off upper castes and the relatively poorer Dalit communities, um, scholars, mainstream literary scholars, wrote sarcastically at times that the new beverages such as tea or coffee had conquered the land and that no work would get done without coffee. These um, literati or literary writers were anxious that coffee was displacing niragaram, or the traditional drink made by fermenting water drained after cooking rice and adding salt to test. 
Now, these writers believed that Niragaram gave vitality to the traditional Indian male body and that its marginalization had been making Indians weak and unhealthy. Coffee here in their imagination became part of a great imperial scheme to weaken the Indian body by replacing more nutritious traditional drinks such as Niragaram. Coffee was also charged by popular writers with marginalizing curd and buttermilk. So coffee caused a great deal of cultural anxiety in the minds of middle class writers in early 20th century South India. Now, this cultural anxiety that the entry of coffee in Tamil society caused also had other dimensions. There was a tension, really, between the temptation of coffee, which was perceived as a source of vigor and energy, almost like an elixir, and there was a fear that it was drawing away vitality from the Tamil people. So you heard quite opposite signals occasionally, indeed quite often. The catch line, for example, of one of the advertisements for coffee in the 1920s wondered if even heavenly bliss was comparable to the cheer that one drew from drinking a cup of piping hot coffee. But conservatives dismissed it as unwarranted, since, and I quote, our ancestors never drank it, unquote. Often enough, every conceivable malady was attributed to coffee. One D. Ramaswamy Iyengar complained that uh, coffee and tea turned their users into addicts, disrupted sleep patterns, and spoilt appetite. Coffee was accused also of uh, somehow aggravating infant mortality, diabetes, constipation, and other lowly diseases. Another didactic writer claimed that coffee was more addictive than beer and arrack. Some Gandhians even called it junior alcohol. Now, there was this magazine, a literary magazine called Stri Dharma, which was published by uh, Women's Indian Association. Some of uh, the publications there claimed that uh, two new enemies had entered the Indian households in the 20th century. They stimulate the organs to begin with. They were talking about tea and coffee. They stimulate the organs to begin with, but in the long run, they damage the digestive system beyond repair. Marimalai Adigal, the father of the pure Tamil movement, regretted the growing popularity of tea, coffee, cocoa, and liquor in the same breath. Everyone was afraid that the West, through coffee, had been invading or penetrating the 
obscure space of the village or the rustic countryside and robbing the innocence of the Indian people. And these writers believe that the cultural autonomy of India lived in its full unadulterated glory only in the villages or in the countrysides. In popular legends, coffee was often compared with a tempting foreign woman who led unsuspecting men away from traditional austerities and controls. One of the Gandhians went so far as to accuse local women of failing the non-cooperation movement. Let me explain. One of the Gandhians wrote to Gandhi in the 1920s that the women had become addicted to Western vices, such as coffee drinking. The women's addiction to coffee drinking, according to him, was one of the reasons why the non-cooperation movement was not successful enough in Madras. In other words, women were so addicted to coffee that they refused to boycott it and therefore non-cooperation movement in Madras presidency was not as successful as it was elsewhere, according to this Gandhian Tamil leader. Sri Dharma, the journal that I, I uh, referred to earlier, also published articles which complained of women who were keen to feed coffee to their children. And uh, the women's desire to feed coffee to their children was such a vice that it apparently rendered all home remedies ineffective. And more people, as a result, now had to rush to doctors, which caused the family expenses to rise suddenly very high. And the household income, as a result, immediately fell insufficient, and people suddenly became poorer. So, through women, according to these uh, complaints, coffee made men poorer and uh, forced them practically to run to doctors where Rome remedies um, earlier would have been sufficient. Yet others complained that uh, women who drank coffee had been losing their breast milk and therefore they were not able to feed their children as much as they should have. Um, which in turn apparently led to a weaker nation. Yet others complain that the milkmen who drank coffee milked their cows dry because they became greedy and wanted to make more profits. It left no milk for calves. In other words, coffee drinking caused uh, milkmen to um, go for more profits and became so greedy with avarice, these milkmen, that they were ready to uh, allow their calves to die. So coffee was now responsible also for the depletion in India's cattle health. Let me return once again to Marimalai Adigal. Adigal was sad 
really, that even those who were educationally and professionally quite accomplished came to see coffee drinking as a matter of prestige. Now, there was no escape. Coffee drinking rose to the status of being a leisure activity, which somehow embodied a distinction of taste or a distinction of class. Those who drank coffee felt that uh, it was what the high and the mighty should do. Therefore, the Tamils could no longer dismiss it as a harmful Western import. Whether they liked it or not, it had become a symbol of prestige, of high status and refinement. So gradually, coffee became a symbol of hospitality in respectable households. It became customary to offer coffee to visiting guests. No host would be taken seriously if he did not ask his guests whether they wanted to have some coffee. Coffee brands published advertisements in which uh, women of the house served their brands of coffee to visiting guests. In fiction writing published during the 1930s and 1940s, there were frequent references to women offering coffee to the guests in their households. In fact, uh, in a short story by Pudumai Pitan, who I'd cited earlier, even Lord Shiva visiting a middle-class household in Chennai was taken to a nearby coffee hotel. I'll have more to say about coffee hotels shortly. So to say a householder did not offer coffee to his guests became the ultimate marker of insult. And to observe that a householder served poor quality coffee to his guests was a serious put down. Another innovation uh, was the metal tumbler, the widespread use of the metal tumbler with reams, was a Tamil Brahmin invention, according to Venkata Chalapati, enabling the drinking of coffee without sipping the tumbler involved a careful balancing of hospitality and also an avoidance of ritual pollution. It has been observed that even where caste restrictions prevented uh, eating food, it was quite legitimate to drink coffee. It was not, therefore, just coffee drinking. Coffee was defined in a particular manner. This definition of the preparation of coffee and the mode of drinking had nothing to do with how it was drunk in the West. The writer R.K. Narayan offers a wonderful descriptions. Let me quote some of those descriptions. So here I go uh, with the quotation from R.K. Narayan. And I quote, 
His mother selects the right quality of seeds, almost subjecting every bean to a severe scrutiny, roasts them slowly over charcoal fire, and knows by the texture and fragrance of the golden smoke emanating from the chinks in the roaster, whether the seeds within have turned the right shade and then grinds them into perfect grains. Everything has to be right in this business. Now, um, the actual process of making coffee went something like this, and I quote, The decoction drawn at the right density on the addition of fresh warm milk turned from black to sepia, from which ultimately emerged a brown, akin to the foaming edge of a river in blood. How the whole thing depended upon one's feeling for quality and eye for color. And then the adding of sugar, just enough to mitigate the bitterness, but without producing sweetness. Coffee making is a task of precision at every stage. So um, even today, there are uh, manual coffee grinders used in middle-class Tamil Brahmin homes. In fact, coffee blended with chikori was uh, quite insulted. Let me um, quote from uh, the story where Shiva was taken to a coffee hotel. And I quote, As God sipped the coffee, a divine demeanor of having drunk soma suffused his face. This is my lilai or divine handiwork, said God. This is not your lilai, but the hotelier's. Mixing shikori with coffee is his handiwork. Show your metal when you pay for the bill, whispered Kandasami Pillai into his ears, content that he had sorted out the issue of paying for the coffee. Shikori? What's that? God looked up queasingly. Shikori powder resembles coffee, but it is not coffee like those who defraud people in the name of God, replied Kandasami Pillai. Obviously, Kandasami Pillai did not believe that he was talking to the God. Anyways, so um, later, of course, uh, blending uh, chikori with coffee became uh, much more acceptable and only the purists frowned upon uh, the practice of mixing chikori with coffee. Good coffee could be made only with cow's milk, with all the ritual importance connected with the cow in Brahmin discourse. R.K. Narayan once again emphatically declared, and I quote, only pure milk, untempered and taken straight from the cow, could be a true coffee component. Making coffee with buffalo's milk was a sign of cultural and moral degradation. 
Now, there were quite a few other institutions which were also born with the practice of coffee drinking. I'll come to some of those at the moment. Um, Coffee constituted an important part of the life of middle class families. By the turn of the 20th century, the Tamil middle class had got so used to coffee in the morning that V.S. Srinivasa Sastri had quite a bit of a problem when he visited Gokhale at Pune. In Gokhale's place, only tea was served, and what passed for coffee was made by the Deccani cooks who did not know how to prepare it. Coffee, in fact, was also used as metaphor. I'll give only one example from Venkata Chalapati's uh, paper. Now, in the mid-90s, Arunachalam, Mu Arunachalam, uh, was writing a paper about Tamil prose. But that's not our point here. Let me quote a certain paragraph from the paper and see how coffee was being used as a metaphor. I quote, 250 years have passed since the formation of standard English prose. Therefore, the need to discuss in the English language the norms of the English prose does not arise. Why would somebody who makes and drinks good coffee twice a day indulge in an analysis of how to make coffee? It is only those who have just started to drink coffee who need to learn coffee making. So coffee here quite effortlessly enters into an essay about language and prose styles. Let me go straight to another institution which coffee drinking in South India gave birth to. With the widespread use of coffee in Tamil society, a new institution which was popularly referred to as coffee hotel or coffee club, which served only coffee and not tea, along with what could be called tiffin or snacks, entered into the towns of Tamil Nadu. This uh, phenomenon of coffee hotels was widely noticed from the 1920s. Many writers wrote about these coffee hotels. For example, G.A. Natesan had this to say, and I quote, It has been said that every third house is either a hairdressing saloon or a coffee hotel. Unquote. These coffee hotels were so popular and uh, brought so much profit that uh, satirist Kuttusi Guruswami wrote, and I quote, They were printing currency notes in one's own press, unquote. Now, um, of course, there were sarcastic references too. And uh, let me quote one of those sarcastic references. I quote, the coffee hotel is one of the most indispensable things 
for human society. Some find it difficult to casually their wives to entertain friends at home. Such persons seek refuge in coffee hotels. The coffee hotel is not just an eating joint. In villages it is a place of congregation. In towns it is the place where leaders clinch deals. Wage earners, school-going students and sub-editors who down half a cup by the hour all depend on the coffee hotel. There are people who sick of homemade food go to eat at these hotels with their family every week. Moreover, what can one do when visitors turn up without notice? So essentially this description reflects the entrenchment or institutionalization of coffee in Tamil society. Incidentally, most of these coffee hotels were generally run by Brahmins and they were associated with Brahmins in popular mind. So um, the writers of non-Brahmin movement often referred to these coffee hotels with contempt. I'll complete uh, or conclude this episode with such a contemptuous reference to coffee hotels. Let me quote. Ayers have begun to open coffee clubs. Their job is not all that difficult. Not much investment is required, nor does one need much brain. The chaps in the coffee clubs do not even wash their faces in the morning. They brush their teeth only at noon. One need hardly mention Sandhya Vandanam. Coffee club is the place where religious codes are broken. After sipping coffee, the brown sahibs put down the cup. A proper Brahmin walks up to the table. On his shoulder is a black sooty towel. He wipes the coffee split on the chair and puts the towel back on his shoulder. So not just coffee, but also the coffee hotel was closely identified with Brahmins, even if they were uh, not so good or successful Brahmins. So it was um, one of the ways uh, in which the Brahmins negotiation was modernity was um, articulated. The complaint that coffee hotels were unclean was often repeated by many middle-class observers. Cups were reused without proper rinsing. Milk was um, adulterated. The waiters and cooks were dirty. The unclean ambience often helped the spread of contagious diseases. I'll stop our introduction to coffee drinking as a practice of leisure in South India. At this point, I had started talking about the anxiety it had created in the minds of a section of the middle classes. And I went through the institutionalization of coffee hotels as a seat of congregation. Um, one of the ways it reflected the changing modes of Indian history in early 
20th century was also how it was associated with women and Brahmins. Coffee had entered into the blood streams of Indian society through coffee hotels, through non-cooperation movement, through office, and through anxieties about the traditional Indian body. I propose to have a larger series on the history of coffee. I'll begin with the earliest uh, phase of coffee's discovery and popularization in, of course, uh, West Asia and um, in Africa, the Arab world, which, of course, is a much longer story. I'd also move along the way to the import or arrival of coffee in Europe and the birth of the coffee house, its social, political and cultural histories at some length. Finally, I'd return once again to the entry of coffee in India in the late 19th and early 20th century and the kind of politics, culture, sociability and stories it generated especially in the late 20th and early 21st century all of that i hope to present to you over the next four or five episodes in september and october i look forward to seeing you again next week this is anirban signing off history chatter in epilogue media do subscribe and like in your favorite podcast streaming platform see you there